Hi, Tony Silva. Charles Wiz. And episode 100 of Two Teachers Talking. Charles and I get together to talk about teaching English in Japan. Um, today we're talking about um, what happens in the classroom when an event, events outside the classroom, uh, create ripples in the classroom that we can't or shouldn't ignore, whether they be big events or little events. But uh, before we get to that, um, this is number 100, Charles. We've done this 100 times. 99. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, actually, no, actually, the first because the first ones we did, we did that four or five we times. Did a pr- we, did a pr- we, did, well, we did a practice one, We remember? did a several. We did a few. We've done more than 100, but this is the 100th one we're putting mm. up online. That's kind of like the... Um, from the newsroom, that television show, the opening, where they're, they're having a talk to some public meeting and some woman stands up and says, in less than a sentence, can you explain <laughs> something like that? So yeah, yeah, a hundred of these. So I don't know. I, I don't want to make a big deal about it. Just noted. And um, it's been interesting and uh, it, to see where we've gone and what we've talked about. Yeah. And it, it's, um, I think, I think it's also, I think maybe the most remarkable thing is how little has changed um a lot of a lot of and how little information we've actually <laughs> provided to people but a lot of the podcasts they start off going in one direction and they end up they morph into other things and we really haven't i mean we've made very few choices we went from monthly to bi-weekly um some technical things you know you know file format who cares uh they both play um it's, it's gotten easier i think for the two of us, because especially at the beginning, it was, you know, it was a big thing. Each we went from two weeks, you know, every two weeks it was like it was pretty intense. Um, hmm, kind of a kind of a significant increase in listeners. Um, and if I, I I don't know. I guess if it's like one thing that's different is like with the increase in the audience size, maybe also an increase in the audience scope. Um, we've got listeners in, um, in Laos, largely because of, you know, Allison's, um, presentation and her involvement with, uh, the, the program there. But yeah, I mean, this week we got, you know, new listener from Kazakhstan. Yeah. And that, that's imagine that. And that's kind of magic, right? It's kind of, it's kind of cool. That is, yeah. that is, yeah. It's been, it's been an interesting journey in certain ways. Uh, I don't want to, uh, I never go back and I really don't like to listen to. Ah, no, the previous no, podcasts. I, I always either. get scared. We when probably I, should. I, I mean, we could probably learn something, but is yeah, it's, it's not. Yeah, very, right. Then we should not, stop. It's we not very shouldn't have done a, <laughs> yeah, We could go back and we will learn that we shouldn't have been doing a hundred of these. Mm. That's probably what we would learn. Mm. I think it might be interesting just to track because over a hundred years, this is since 2012, right? It was when we started. Maybe. Because it has to be after the Toku, yeah, the Tohoku Fukushima earthquake. Because I know we weren't doing this when I was in, uh, okay, in Yokohama permanently. So it's been a while. But it would have to I be think, to have a hundred, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially for so the first few years, two one year, two years, we did two a month, right? So that would have knocked off fifty, about forty eight in the first two years, and then you have to account for fifty over the next few years. Yeah. So two thousand. 18 2016 and then 12 a year so that's about right yeah so probably 2013 i think 
If there was only some way we could look this up. Uh, our first, yes, if there's if only first, some way we could our, do this. If only we had like access to the internet. Our if only there was, was internet access. April, April 21st, 2012. Okay. After our discussion at um, the Hard Rock, right? Yeah. Yeah. Where we should be recording this. And so I guess, but it's it's an interesting thing. So our personal history goes back to late late nineties, late nineties, right when we worked together. Yeah. And so we're going basically on almost a twenty year history ourselves. Yeah, time do so, fly. Yes, we when we were young once. Yeah, must have been. <laughs> I can't been. remember any longer. It seems like a long time ago. But okay, so now that we've well, gotten the hundredth podcast kind of market noted out of the way, we've got this topic. So Tony, there was a yeah, there was an earthquake. I, yeah, I was flying into like Yokohama that day, so I totally missed it. You totally missed it. Yeah. I was flying into Tokyo. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit what happened and where you were, and uh, we'll move from there. Yeah. Okay. Well, this was um this was the uh, Monday morning, uh, June eighteenth, just before eight o'clock. I think it was seven fifty eight. on it. Um, located uh, northern Osaka Prefecture, southern Kyoto. Uh, I guess Takatsuki is um maybe the center of it, and uh, a pretty significant shake. Uh, I think it was like six point one on the Japanese scale, mid fives on the Richter scale. Um, and uh, that was from where I live. That's like less than 10 miles from where I live, 16 clicks, less than that. Um, but I was already on my way to work <clears throat> in southern Osaka. And I was already, I was walking. And um, where I was on the street walking, uh, there was a, a bit of a shake. And then they got the um, <clears throat> the warning on the phone. You know the the, the, the screeching you know, announcement yeah. that like there's an earthquake, and um, you know got. Well, to for the, those people who who aren't in Japan, can you explain that? There is um the phones in Japan, a built-in system. There's an earthquake alert system, and it's supposed to alert you to an earthquake. But often, as often as not, it comes after the earthquake or simultaneously, which really, <clears throat> anyway, at at that point, you kind of know that it's an earthquake. <laughs> but it, uh, it you know it, it's very obtrusive and it's um <clears throat> no it's, it's it's an alert warning right and it overrides everything else and and even if the phones are in silent mode or whatever it's still it, just... it overrides everything and it says it's an earthquake it's an earthquake it's an earthquake um and yeah and then at that point the ground is all shaking and you know it was it was pretty mild where i was um my my home and i look at the map now it's this Far enough away where it was like minor, but there's like one little intense spot in the in, in the, the north part of Osaka City, you know, kind of central, um, and it was it was a five here as well, and um, our apartment building, our, our condominium, didn't suffer any structural damage. The the gas automatically shuts off. That's an easy reset. The elevator was non-functional just for testing, safety testing. So that meant a 12 flight walk up <laughs> the stairs when I got home. I was um, in southern Osaka to getting ready to teach. All the trains at that point stopped in the Osaka area. The campus was pretty much deserted. Most teachers weren't there. There were a, a few of us who were there early, and we were stranded there. 
and um, just waited till about noon. And uh, some of the train lines started running, and I talked with some of the office staff, and we plotted out some alternate routes home. And so I walked with a uh, Japanese physics professor to his train line, which is running south to Wakayama. And then I walked another distance west to a train line that would get me to another terminal, which then got me to a train that got me close to home. So the actual commute home took about three hours, um, ordinarily about an hour and 10, hour and 15. But, and at home there was, um, there was mess to clean up because we're, as I said, we're on the 12th floor. It's a, it's a modern building. It, you know, it's structurally sound, but you know, it's got rollers. So it was moving back and forth from the earthquake. And then it was like whipping back and forth, of course, in addition to that. So, Oh, things falling off of shelves, drawers open. Yeah, mostly just things off a shelf and things that were breakable that fell off of shelves broke. So it was a bit of cleanup when I got home, but um, no real damage per se. Um, so, you know, compared to our previous experiences, um, you and I were both here in um, uh, 1995 for the Great Hanjin earthquake. Your experience with... Um, the earthquake in Tohoku, uh, very disruptive. Yeah, Yokohama, you were in to yeah. you were in Yokohama, but very disruptive because of the the nuclear problem. Um, maybe you want to talk about that. Not really. <laughs> A sense or two. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Basically, for people who don't, everybody knows that there was the Fukushima meltdown, and um, what happened for us is uh, that two thousand five. No, no. Wait. What was that? Two thousand eleven. Two thousand eleven. Two thousand eleven. And the I don't know if we've even ever talked about this, but we where we were, we had we blacked out we had a blackout. We had no power. And the weird thing was that I kept t tuning into the armed forces you know armed forces radio hmm. that you can get in the Kanto area, but they just kept playing music and it was really shocking that they didn't provide any news or information the whole time. And there was immediate radio. We had a little bit of radio, and I remember turning to my wife, you know, Izumi, and saying, "You know, Izumi, they haven't made the announcement that the uh, the nuclear power plants are okay." And I said, "That's that's strange." And then we had a blackout, and of course, you know, um, stupidly enough, I don't think we had like a radio, or I didn't bother to check for the radio. So it wasn't until ten o'clock that night. That we actually even saw the TV images, you know, the, uh, the TV came back on and we saw the um, tsunami coming, you know, images, which was really scary. Mm. But we, um, of course, far enough away, nothing, no, nothing traumatic about that. But that was just incredibly disruptive um, because even in Tokyo, that caused a lot of damage. Um, people who were at, you know, my university actually had to stay overnight because there was no, there were no trains and, uh, there was no transportation coming out. Highways were closed down. You couldn't get out because they had to check everything for safety. So, yeah, yeah. But you know, we didn't have anything compared to what people in Tohoku went through. But uh, and then school, of course, was delayed. I think until late April, if I'm correct. We didn't start until really very late. So that's you know my experience was the Kobe quake and then this earthquake you know, the Tohoku earthquake as it affected the Kanto region, the Tokyo, Yokohama area in Japan. Yeah. But, yeah, so the next day, though, you went into school, right? So the next day, uh, so the next day I was I was headed to Kyoto, and I realized, actually, that morning that I was going to be 
riding the train right through the epicenter of where the earthquake was. And, and frankly, I didn't see a whole lot of damage. I was going to Kyoto. And um, a lot of the students there um, had gotten stuck. And because uh, the, the train lines just stopped, stopped running, they, there was no train service. So um, a lot of them had been at school overnight. And they're young. They don't really have the experience. I don't know how bad the earthquake itself was there. <clears throat> I imagine it was it, you. They felt it if if they were already at school, or if they're living in the dorm there. Because that Tuesday morning when I was there, there was a, a significant jolt, an aftershock, uh, in a very very old building. But it was it was a it was a good good whack. So I imagine the original one was also. Um, you know, felt pretty badly over there. But um, another one of my schools, they canceled classes just like, because Northern Osaka, in, in, uh, actually Toyonaka, um, <clears throat> had to expect, inspect buildings for safety and so forth and so on. But uh, for me, the big impact and, and kind of the reason that I, I wanted to talk about this because is what I, what I saw in the students on Tuesday and, um, the ones, you know, okay, of course, there's a lot more absences than usual. Some kids did fly home. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure parents is, you know, come home, come home. And fly home to Hokkaido or whatever, or where they have their own earthquakes. Um, but um, the ones who had gotten stranded there were quite visibly shaken, you know, and uh, not behaving the way that they would ordinarily behave. I think that's that's like the again that kind of the crux of of what we're talking about here, where uh, whether it's a an earthquake okay, or something more personal and more small scale that happens to the students outside the classroom, that no way to avoid impacting and having a huge effect on what the, how they act and how they behave in the classroom, and for the teacher, that's pretty much. A, opaque unless of course in this case every it's a shared experience everyone is aware of it and it's in in its own way much easier to deal with because everybody's aware you everybody has their own story everyone has their own experience everyone it's right there but it, it's something that's personal one student or two students very easy to let it just like fly right off the map and just not notice it and just you know blame the kid um and so i thought that was an interesting thing to talk about B both scales right i mean it's like one kind of the easy way with the, when it's something that affects everybody, but also, you know, opening it up and saying, well, yeah, that kind of, those kinds of traumatic experiences are going on all the time. There's all kinds of things that are happening outside the classroom that creates not ripples, but waves um, that flood into the classroom and, and affect what's happening there. Well, I think that first you have the, the attributional fallacy. Hmm which is that we look at people and say, oh, this is the way somebody is and saying, no, this is the way somebody is in this context. And that is so essential as teachers sure. because the students we see, we've talked about this before, yeah. who we see in a classroom, especially a, you know, a second language classroom is very, very different from who these people are. Just like we're very different yep, in the classroom. Yep, yep. But I think the question you're, you're bringing up is we're looking at, especially the, our audience, which is a group of people trained to teach a second language. And I have no 
real sense that there are a lot of people who are comfortable or familiar with these kind of dealing with these traumatic events comfortably and feel um, competent to do it. And that was first introduced to me when I was at one school a number of years ago. It's probably sometime in the mid-1990s, and found out a student had committed suicide. And the school had was making no announcement. I was a part-timer there. I think I was teaching two days a week, maybe, possibly three, I can't remember. But the school was just ignoring this suicide. So I was working with a colleague um, who we were talking about this, and we said, wait, and something has to be done. And both of us had a little bit of background, a little bit in dealing with some kind of crisis management or kind of peer counseling backgrounds. And we suggested putting together a simple basic lesson about how to identify the warning signs of depression and how to know that somebody might be moving into the next stage and what you should do and how to talk to the person and try to adapt it to a different culture. And I remember that there were teachers who says, I, I don't want to teach this. I don't feel comfortable doing this. And people saying, we understand you don't feel comfortable, but it's not about us. You, we have to do this because this is something that's going to make a difference in these student lives. And if the school hasn't created a program or doesn't know how to do it, something really needs to be done. So I think there's the two things. One is there's the shared experience, right, which you're talking about the earthquake and what a teacher should do in this situation, which is what I want to explore with you. But I think, Tony, the other thing you mentioned that is really important, though, is that there is so much going on with these students' lives that we don't even see or we don't even know. Yes. And, you know, how does a teacher create an environment that somehow allows for that to be exposed or explored or shared? And I think that's where we want to go with this. Yeah, or at least no, no, no. You're on. So you, I'm, nail, I'm wondering, nail on the head. How, I'm wondering how. So how, what did you do? How did you deal with this? You go into class. It's the next day. Mm. You said it's obvious that students are exhibiting behaviors that are not common, non-normative, mm. from what you expect. What did you do? Okay. So for, first, my my mindset, right? And and this might be a little bit anachronistic because I'm I'm an old old fart, right? And, yes, and, I would agree. And show my age <laughs> and stuff, but it's like either when either if it's a like the share type of thing, like we, we had this you know recently, um, or if it's just something that you kind of you know sixth sense picks up, you observe what's going on. Um, but maybe more specifically with like some kind of like big traumatic event, a shared event like like an earthquake, um, you know, contemporary. Um, thoughts like you know about you know be aware of your feelings it's like well you know again being a old fart this is time to kind of step up and um, be an adult and uh, maybe yeah you've got your feelings you got your own trauma you got stuff that you're dealing with and yeah 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 oh let's for the time being teacher put that on the shelf for a second um you're the adult here and more so especially in japan you're the sensei um it's not about you and it's not about your feelings it's about your responsibilities um and that's you know my opinion and so what you do is you you know you you put your feelings in a box put them on the shelf for the time being and you might need them in class 
you might you might, might go, be going to this box. I'll explain in a minute or two. But um, then you uh, put on your empathy suit, right? And um, yeah, I mean, there you know, there's this kid who's gotten stranded in in Kyoto and she couldn't get home and so she's traumatized. You know, she's not a, a refugee in, in from Africa, you know, like like bobbing around in the Mediterranean Sea. No. But to her it feels like it. Um and you kinda kinda get into their heads and try to imagine what they're feeling and what it must feel like. And you're gonna have to anticipate and make allowances for all kinds of non-normative, aberrant behaviors that's going to happen. And you you just got to be open with that. Um, what I did uh, on Tuesday and on Wednesday, a little bit on, by Thursday, I took a holiday on Friday, uh, anniversary. Uh, but um, congratulations. Thank How many you. Years? 14. All right. Yeah. So I began, you know, you, you know, class begins and, you know, they're kind of like, Ugh. and you can just, that, that from there, the bell rings and they're looking, it's like, okay, what's going to happen? And he's like, just a, take off the teacher face. <laughs> it's just, so they put on the episode and like, so, hey, hey, you guys, how you doing? Who's, uh, anybody having a real hard time? You guys okay? Um, everything else? And it's like, and I, I, then I share my own story very briefly to encourage sharing, not to make my, you know, oh, you don't know, I was stuck here. No, so, yeah, I got stranded too. So, how about you? How about you? How about you? Um, and just kind of open up a little bit, show your vulnerability, and let the students see that, yeah, it's okay to be effed up after an event like this. Um, something like this um, screws with your world and it screws with your head, and it's okay to be out of control to a certain extent and be upset so forth and so on. So let them open up, I open up a little window, let them see that, yeah, it's okay. And you don't, you know, today the normal rules don't apply and you can relax if you can put your head down. You can, you can cry a little as I did have students cry a little bit. Um, restraint, patience, uh, and you'll have things that are seemingly unrelated come up, and it's like, well, you know, you got to be aware that yeah, maybe there's a connection to this, this, this trauma that they've just experienced, right? It's going to manifest in all, all very, very unpredictable ways, um, and there's no way that you can, you know, you got all, all, you know, a classroom full of kids. There's no way you can see in to see how their individual worlds have been affected, but. You've got to be the adult, um, you know, be, be Mr. Rogers for a day. Um, specifically, um, but I did in terms of the class, um, try to do more group activities, um, cut way back down on lecture, uh, cut way back on solo work, um, more lenience with use of uh, L1, of, of Japanese. Um, just, just, you know, just back off a bit. Let them have their space. Let them have the recovery thing. And I think the group activities is maybe um, the the key thing because uh, subliminally, if if not tangibly, um, that kind of activity maybe helps them 
re-enter, especially in Japan, right, where the group is is paramount, um, kind of eases their their way back in. At the same time, you got to be, as, as you point out, aware of our limits. Not psychologists. We're not social workers. Not mental health professionals. Um, there's some stuff that we probably should leave alone for the professionals, uh, but um, there are certain things that we can do, I think, to create that kind of secure environment uh, where it makes it easier for them to come back to the normal routine of daily life after some kind of trauma. Uh, and they may be the baseline. It doesn't mean that we can't be grownups um, in, in the literal sense, just like you are the adult and they're looking to you for all kinds of support and direction and cues, whether they're aware of it, whether you're aware of it or not. Um, it's a, it's this, this is the day where you, when we talk about making a difference. This is a day where you can make a difference. I think that's, that's my thought anyway. What do you think? Don't you think that other teachers did exactly the same as you did? Well, I hope so. Do you have any, I have no input. I haven't talked with anybody about what they do or what they don't do. But I would imagine that some teachers did pretty much exactly what I did. And I'd imagine there are teachers that went in there and, and just taught it like a regular class. I don't yeah, have I any evidence either way, but that's just my guess. I guess some that... Uh, That'd be a real interesting thing to investigate hmm. is how many teachers just went in and basically taught a class. I can see that very normal. easily with some people that I know. I'm just making assumptions, but um, yeah. Yeah, I, I find it maybe for people who don't feel comfortable with this idea of having students, you know, share their experiences. Um, the best way to deal with it would just be just think about it in the same way you think about a student-centered classroom and collaborative activities. Mm -hmm. just, you know, give the students control to talk about what they want. And mm -hmm. if you really don't feel comfortable, then provide students with the, the language to describe their feelings. Mm -hmm. I was scared. I was nervous. I'm not okay. I'm still jittery, right? That would be a way to take the lesson and turn it into your English teaching lesson mm. if you're not comfortable. But I'm going to side with you in one sense that mm. I think to ignore the topic and just, you know, go in and teach a regular class is just not really fair to the students. But then on the other hand, there's some cultural issues here. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, in Japan, we have this, you know, persevere thing, gambate, gaman, right? Um, I mean, I remember once we were having a, a professor's meeting and an earthquake hit during the professor's meeting, and we're all freaking out trying to, you know, figure out where to go, you know, safe. And there was some guy who was reading his report and he just continued didn't to miss read a beat, huh? his. He didn't miss a beat. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm sorry. I, you know, why don't you just stop and say, oh, hey, everybody, why don't you get under the table? <laughs> and I don't know if I'm the only person in a room of 150 people who felt that way, or probably I am the only person in a room of 150 <laughs> people who felt that way. <laughs> but I think it's important to note it. And then again, another justification for it is to go in and say, look, excuse me, but as a American or a Canadian or Australian, you know, as somebody um, New Zealand or, you know, European, that we would, as teachers, 
make a comment in the class. We would talk about this in the class. And then you give students the opportunity, even though they might, they're traumatized, I think, and totally freaking out, to see that, ah, oh, this is how it would be dealt with in a school in, let's say, in an English-speaking country. And I think that's the other way that you can justify it. The other hand is that if you're not comfortable with it, then just you're going to have to, I think, again, find some way to give students some indication that they've gone through an experience and that things will be lightened up a little and you won't be as, you know, your usual strictness, as you said, a little less strict with the L use of L1 in the classroom, things like that. You know, students checking their phones, I think, is another way to look at it, right? You know, sure. people might be checking on, you know, who's okay, who's not okay. So, but we could move that over then, Tony. I think that these kind of experience, I think you and I would respond somewhat similarly. I'd probably put my students together in groups and, you know, just say, look, just talk with each other in Japanese for a few minutes, you know, get a sense, you know, check with each other. And I'd say, hey, make sure everybody's family's okay, their friends are okay, that their houses are okay. And then start the lesson, I think, at that point. And I think, you know, you're saying before about like the, the guy at the meeting, right? I think especially, as you said, in Japan, a case could be made for, no, the best way to deal with is this is to just go through. straight through and ignore it. Yeah, it's like, okay. Because that's what, that's what would be, I think, done at, for by most Japanese people. But again, yeah. I don't have and evidence that, for that, that. Yeah, yeah. And that thing. But anyway, that's what I did. Um, okay. And, I, and you, know, it, you know, just the background stuff. Yeah, I, I, my teaching is maybe like a lot more personal. Um more involved, more connection with students uh, than than maybe some other teachers and things. So that's kind of I veer off into that direction. But I can see, as you said, in Japan, an argument be made for going the other way. Yeah, I, I find it interesting because my approach is to start every class with a story. Hmm. You know, I do my little talk. Because I want to warm the students up, get them used to things. And usually it's a story about uh, something about Izumi or my daughter. And some, you know, with Izumi, sometimes it's like these nice, these really funny, you know, um, cross-cultural, intercultural miscommunications or a story about how I didn't listen or something to get them to understand about differences, something that illustrates. It might be a story about an interaction I had something I read or some mistake I made is usually my favorite one. And because that's such an incredible um, large number of <laughs> mistakes that I make, I can draw on that pretty easily. So I always, there is a certain personal thing. Uh, and so if I had been in this situation, I probably would have started off with a real just quick, hey, you know, how are you guys? Are you okay? I was at my home and this house started shaking. God, I was so scared. And you know, I ran in, you know, and did this or did that. So I think that there's some benefit to that. And But I don't know about differences generationally in Japan about how they communicate, what their attitudes are about sharing information. My guess is that they shared a lot of information via line. Sure. Um, I know that my daughter gets a lot of um, news through line right now. That's one of her main sources. So there's that. But let's move it over mm. to the invisible stuff. Yeah, yeah, the smaller stuff. So the... the the personal, you know, these individual kind of big stuff. things are kind of easy to see because everyone experiences. Everyone's got like an angle. Everyone's got a story. 
So you have an insight into what they have gone through because you've gone through it and you know it's shared. Right, exactly. But there's all kinds of things in an ordinary day-to-day life. There's all kinds of things that are happening in student lives that similarly have this huge impact on their reality of the classroom. Their experience of the classroom is like so strongly affected by all the other stuff that's going on in their lives. And we don't know. Um, Death in the family or even like of a pet. Uh, Divorce. I mean, you have these mysterious notices from the college. Oh, there's a name change. It's like no explanation. It's like, well, what the hell is going on here? It's like, okay, you got attendance. Like what, which name? You've had a student had a name change. I've had that happen several times. Really? I've never had that happen. I've had it like three or four times. It's just like, okay, this student is now Yoshikawa. Huh. But no explanation. Um, So, yeah, divorces, whatever, love problems, friend problems, bullying, peer pressure, especially first-year students. Um, I had a real interesting case this year. Um, Very, you know, again, 2018, really inappropriate to talk about, I guess. But I'm going to talk about it anyway. <laughs> it's going to, well, 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 that's a pre- first, pre- Tony. Premise of the, that's of the a podcast, first time right? that you've talked about anything inappropriate. So okay. anyway, it's, it's it's a public school, it's a co-ed school, and uh, as you probably have probably a similar experience, um, you know the fashion uh, of these things. Everyone really kind of dresses down. There's lots of people living in dorms. They're living alone for the first time. Um, there's not a lot of dress up and. Um, I don't know where the girl is from. I obviously did not discuss it with her. But um, with the first class or two showing up to class, kind of dressed up and um, makeup and um, showing some skin. And, um, and it was the second class. I think some student must have said something to her. And she was basically hunched over and clutching her bag to her chest for the whole class. And since then she's progressively changed her wardrobe to be more and more casual, less and less careful, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, you know, I haven't said anything about it. Um, except in, uh, we had a oral exam. So it's, it's, it's kind of spontaneous, like four students in a group discussing the topics that we've talked about. The, uh, the notion of peer pressure came up, and I just mentioned after, you know, they do their exam, and I mentioned, you say, okay, well, the usage, you know, usage correction, blah, 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 interesting thing. This is the way, you know, you said this. It's normally this. Um, a very interesting idea. You talked about thing, and you don't know the word. We haven't done it in class yet. Peer pressure. And it says, by the way, it happens a lot of times when students come to university from other places, and uh, there's a certain way of, dressing a certain way of being that was like the norm normal where you've been but then they come here and they see everybody else is dressing a different way and they feel a different way that they, that they need to change that's all um and so anyway bullying peer pressure um yeah first year students first year away from home you know kids from all over you know japan coming in and um Dealing with Osaka, right? I mean, the, the pace. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's kind of culture shock, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, health issues that kids have that, you know, also opaque. We have no idea. 
and something that I haven't had for a real long time, because um, you know I have taught at women's universities for a long time, I haven't had any pregnancies for a real long time. I guess people really aren't having sex anymore, because that used to be a thing. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> oh, come on, man. I listen, I'm thinking, but wait, how many students do I know when I, okay, I used to teach at some women's universities. I only can remember one girl huh? talking about becoming pregnant. But I have at least half a dozen. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I know I used to, well, you know, this is something we talked about before. I think I used to be a lot closer to my students, and we've sent back mm, some emails mm -hmm, back and mm -hmm, forth. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about some of the things you said, and then I realized, wait a second, I was teaching at much smaller universities, and they were women's universities that have a much more, I think, close-knit feeling. Yeah, it's a, that makes a right. big difference in class size. Right. And I remember I used to see students two or three times a week. I used to get to really know them. Now I see oh, students that's so once different. a week. Yeah. yeah, but we were talking about this, and I'm thinking, going back, okay, I know a student who two or at least... I didn't have pregnancies, but I had a number of students who came to talk and didn't know what to do about rape. No. Right? Because they I've never weren't had being, that. I've never had that. That was really difficult. There was a real difficult issue at one of my universities about that. Then, you know, boyfriend problems, you know, problems with parents. So it used to be that way. But one of the things I wanted to go back to, Tony, is to say that for people who are outside of Japan, when you talk about opaque, <laughs> I mean, I remember that I had a student in my class, and this was a year-long class, and somehow a converse, the discussion topic came up about something difficult, a difficult time you had had. And the girl... I remember it was it was at what this one women's university and she said it was really difficult when both my parents were killed in a car accident seven months ago. And yeah, and do you know that there was no indication that I, I I think it's it's a combination of my being just dense as hell, but there was no sadness, there was no change of behavior, noticeable change of behavior to let me know that something like that happened. Um, I do remember that this changed me a lot, was I used to ask students at the beginning of classes, what's your best experience and your worst experience? Don't ask and the second one. Don't ask the second <laughs> one. Because the, again, I, I asked it and this, um, as a student, I still remember clearly who just said my, my mother died two weeks ago. And, but, you know, I, I remember saying to that student, you know, look, I had the same thing happen when I was young. You just take it easy. Um, you know, sharing that, look, I had that happen to me. I remember it was really difficult. You just do what you need to do. You come to class, et cetera. You know, give a lot of space. So I think those kinds of things are a lot more like, I mean, recently um, I had a student who ended up dropping out of college because of personal problems, you know, family really just, you know, their whole family just basically self-destructing. Um, I've had other students who've had depression and talked about this. Uh, that seems to be increasing, though, is the number of students who are being it's a depressed. Worldwide phenomenon, yeah, it's the yes. times. Yes, or either that or it's they're increasing in depression because they're taking my classes. That's also a possibility. <laughs> but 
what I was going to say. Get over yourself. Is, it's got nothing to do with you. <laughs> I know it has nothing to do. It's the, it's the attributional fallacy again, right? Although sometimes, sometimes I do teach some really bad lessons. Anyway, <laughs> me too. What it right? What it, the thing is that I think I have a little bit more background maybe than most people because I did work in a peer counseling program, get some basic training in peer counseling, Ooh. and actually direct a program when I was in San Francisco for a couple of years. The thing is just trying to be open, I think is what you said, just trying to be sensitive and aware, because here's the reality, is that even though we're in a culture that doesn't support this, we might be, as a foreign teacher, the only possible avenue of access that person has to talking about something that they could not talk with. Exactly. within their culture. Exactly. And also, especially if, if you have students that are, anywhere near uh, the level to be able to do it, the fact that it's in English, and I've had like some of my advanced students talk about it, it's like, absolutely, they say, you know, there are things that I can talk about in English that I can't talk about in my native That's language. That's a really important point. And, and, and that we talk about uh, use of English and direct communication, which I made part of like almost all my classes, the more so the more advanced the students are. But yeah, it opens up this whole other channel uh, for them to be able to do this. And I think I shared this with my, my teacher list a week or two ago, but maybe not how, no, I don't. I just, I just, I said, I should have shared it with someone who has a psychologist wife that uh, bilingual people um, might need more than one therapist, depending on the nature of the issue and which language they need to address the issue in. I'm going, damn, and how they damn would right, address... that's what I've been saying for years. But every psychologist always says, no, no, no. So yes, yes, yes. <laughs> right, so in other words, that the way that they would deal with the issue on a very deep emotional, psychological level is affected by the language and how they're communicating about the language, but also who they're talking to and all the rules. Exactly. With I, I completely concur yeah, on that. Sure, like, like a Japanese classroom is like, okay, yeah, nothing said, you know, gambate, just, just, you know, suck it up. Just let's get on with it. English language classroom is like, um, how you doing? There are some students who are going to be open to this, and there are some students who are not. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. The problem I've always had is that when I've been able to talk, you know, the few times that this has happened, or a number of times it's happened, I'm not sure, few and a number is such an ambiguous set of terms, but when you have to hand that student off, to someone who's trained and it's only recently that uh i've seen that where you know there is somebody to be trained and i remember once at one university this was really weird that a student was talking to me because they had some trouble and i was the only person i guess at that point they felt comfortable talking to because i think i was you know outside of their basic norm and i we talked and i said i think you need to go talk to somebody and they said I'm scared to go. And they said, would you go with me? And I said, okay. And we went, I found out where the, well, the kudos to you. Was. Yeah. Well, no, that, think, no, no, that she trusted you enough to do that. That's, that's, yeah, a, well, that that's was, okay. That's big, man. That's big, man. Thank yeah. you. Okay. But <clears throat> all right. But the thing that was really frightening to me is we found the room where the counselor was. Okay. Yeah. And it's this, you know, it was, it had a glass front. Okay. Mm. And the glasses, I guess for privacy, all the blinds are all the way down 
and the door is closed. And, you know, I had a hard time opening that door. So there's, and this is a culture that has not very much support for counseling services. Sure. It's not like, you know, I think, Tony, we've joked often about this. You know, I'm from California where, you know, therapy is kind of like what you do after you graduate from high school. It's a hobby. And yeah, well, <laughs> there you go. That's, you, Sorry. <laughs> no, we did that on purpose. We've been practicing this and waiting for this moment for years. But right there's a very, very different attitude, I think. And we're probably part of the first generation that does not see a therapist or counseling as an indication of mental illness. Yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not stigmatized it, the way it used to be. Right. It's, it's a way that you want to move forward from something that you don't seem to be able to progress from. But here, there's just such an incredible you know, stigma about this. Sure. And we could talk even about the, you know, the, stu- the kids who, be, who get stuck in their rooms. But you're right. Um, things like bullying and all these other um, like even dealing with bullying, there's so much silence about that. Sure. So, yeah. Even as much as it is in the news, the specifics are always like uh, un, under the radar. It's just like, it's like coded, silenced. It's like you read about it all the time, but you don't, it's so ephemeral. You can't put your finger on it anywhere. No one talks about and it. I th- well, you know, sometimes it's it's interesting because it might possibly be that people have real specific images of what bullying is. It's very and they different. don't realize that, for example, I asked students, I said, you know, when you go drinking or go to, you know, your parties with your circles, which are basically social clubs in Japan, and do you get like pressure to drink? And like, if you don't drink, that there's some kind of consequence to that? And students will usually say, yeah. And I say, you know, that's bullying, don't you? That's power harassment. And they're shocked by that because they don't see that as bullying. Mm. I think they see bullying as, you know, taking money from a student or, you know, or, punching the or, student as a group. Or ignoring them. Oh, right. Yes. He yes, <laughs> says, yes, please yes, ignore yes. me. <laughs> please ignore, Please leave me alone. That's all I want. Please bully me by, by ignoring yeah, me. He, you and Van Morrison, what is it? The song, um, and just like Greta Garbo, just like and like Greta Garbo, I, I just want to be alone. <laughs> By the way, fantastic song, fantastic song. But I totally understand that feeling too. So, but again, so if you're, let's try to make this concrete. Yeah. That if you go into a classroom and you sh- share a little bit about your life, you set up a. Um, an atmosphere where students know that they know your partner's name or they know your child's name or they know that you're involved with somebody or, you know, something. Just, you know, a little bit of personal information that you're sharing. You're setting a tone for them. You're Also, you're demonstrating a little bit about openness. But I don't know if a lot of professors would do this in the United States anymore because I don't know what the rules that are governing. Yeah. But I remember one of my best professors would always tell a great story at the beginning of class about mm-hmm. he and his wife. And we were just like, we felt like by the end of the semester, like, wow, I really know you know your wife reasonably well. And it, it was really interesting. And he always had the ability to tie it together. But maybe just a little story about how difficult your commute was or how you felt coming into school or how hard it was to prepare for a class so students know you're human and you have feelings. Well, I think that's a good way to I start like that creating idea. an I open like that atmosphere. idea, this week's story. I, I, that's a really nice idea, nice specific. One, you know, when I used to have students for three days a week and I had this big class and they'd be like 28 students for an oral English class, 
I got this idea from my friend Leslie who passed away. I, I think I've mentioned Leslie a number of times who was like the best teacher I've ever seen in my life. Um, I just, you know, awed me, you know. And by the way, talking about the ability to, I want to segue here for a second because this is a really good story about this. Leslie um, Brzezak was this really incredible human being and he was my my mentor. And he asked me to help him teach a, a three-day intensive at Yokohama many years ago when I was in Kobe for a World Bank program. And I was teaching these uh, people who were, it's a master's program who were involved in government and they were nominated by their, their governments or by their offices to be part of this master's program. And we go into this room with about 15 people, all from different places in the world. And Leslie just starts the talking. And it was amazing because Leslie knew a thing about every one of the, every person's country. It was the most amazing exhibition of geographical knowledge I've ever seen. But what was amazing was within 20 minutes, and I remember basically I was trying to pick my jaw off the floor when I saw this, was that within 15 to 20 minutes, Leslie had these people talking about they were missing their wives, how isolated they felt, how lonely they felt, how difficult it was to be in Japan. He had these, you know, he was had that ability to really bring people's emotions and feelings out. And he did it by just being warm. Now, granted, this was non-Japanese students. These are students all from, you know, different countries. But the idea that he would share information and say, oh, I know a little bit about your country. And I remember it was really nice because he was a real major world traveler, this guy, right? Mm. But um, anyway, I want to go back to this idea. The reason I mentioned it, because that was like really long way to miss a point, was that Leslie suggested, had this idea, and it was called Student News. And every week, because in these three-day classes, two students would be assigned to give student news. And they could talk about anything they wanted in their lives or something they had watched. And in my classes, student news became like, I guess for lack of a better word, the confessional period, where the students started sharing what was going on in their families. One girl shared that she wanted to you know, do an overseas exchange program, but her parents didn't want her to do it and were really you know, coming down on her. So I think the point is that if you give students the opportunity to communicate what's going on in their lives in a supportive, friendly manner, some will take advantage of it. And I don't see much of a downside to it. Private students will remain private. Anyway, yeah, but, sorry, it took me a lo- it took me a long time to get to my point. Yeah, about the, the only news. downside that I would see in that is like if some kids got some stuff that they're really, you know, some hard stuff that they're dealing with, and it's like their turn to like share their story. It's like this, this incredible pressure. It's like okay, how do they make something up that doesn't right. like have a tell to what they're trying not to share with anybody, and to feel this incredible you know, pressure to be? I'm, <laughs> I'm projecting a little bit here. <laughs> but having having <laughs> to go out there and expose yourself in front of the you know the class and stuff that might be a little uncomfortable. But but ah, I mean, again, we're not professionals, but maybe therapeutic as well. So who knows? But, but there you, was enough. You can make something a, up, right? There was enough bouncing back and forth between light topics and heavy topics. I think the students felt comfortable. Yeah, and you made, so, and if you make that it, would be made clear. It's like it could be something as silly as like yeah, a broken shoelace, right? Right. Oh, I think one student talked about how their their bike chain broke on there the way to school, and that you know all the different you know it was it was one of the best student news ever was about all the different ways that they had to try to figure out how to get to school because 
It was easy enough to get to school by bicycle, but by going by train, you had to take like three different trains, which is why they rode their bike for like 35 minutes to get to school. Um, but it, there are positives and negatives. And again, you're not trained. And okay, so here's the thing. You could be scared that there's a set of emotions that are going to come out or some information is going to come out. And if it does, sit that back with the student after they finish and ask them if they want to talk to somebody who's really trained to help them, give them that opportunity. Because I think most students uh, would avoid that. Yeah, except the other occasion where you might have a student like with, you know, somebody on the on the Tourette syndrome that might be able to not be able to throttle and end up saying, unable to throw, hold back and say something like really something troubling for everybody, uh, for, the, for the student, the other students okay. and the teacher themselves, right? But this is why many teachers don't even want to go yeah, near it's, any it's, personal yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah, you're because, opening up a can of worms. Because you're working, even if you're working one-on-one, do I really want to have, you know, give students the opportunity to say something to me that I don't want to hear? Oh, I really want to know this, yeah. Yeah, and there was one time where it got, you know, very, very uncomfortable because it required me to go to the school and report about, you know, a pre, you know their previous experience in high school yeah. and what had happened to them, so... And that caused me a lot of trouble. Sure. But, but again, you know, I, th- I want to. But yeah, Tony, I want to go back to what you said in the beginning, though. It's not about us, right? Right. The right. real metric, right? You, you have to ask yourself is not whether I feel uncomfortable. You could say, "Ah, am I qualified to handle this?" But it's not about me. You have to always ask yourself, "What is in the best interest of the student right now?" Right. The, these are so, these are our charges, and we have to yes. be. We, it's uh, for us to like to step up, but be aware of your. You have to be self-aware, and you have to be aware of, of like not only who you are, but like what you're projecting, what you're asking them to do. What what do you really? And when you your actions, how are those actions perceived? And you got to accept responsibility for, um, yeah, you know, at, at the very least, a certain amount of leadership. It's like you are you're in the front. You are the leader of the classroom. You're the teacher. And like it or not, these are all conscious decisions. And uh, it's up to you to be aware and to have the sensitivity to make the right decisions. And, you know, obviously we you know, can't sit here in front of these microphones and say, I'll tell you what the right decision is going to be. It's like, no, um, you got you, you to gotta make the call. There's a couple of things to that. One is that if a student ever comes up to you and says, I'd like to talk with you about something and you get a sense that it's personal, you have really no choice in that situation. I think Agreed. you have to listen. Agreed. Absolutely. That's, you know, you're as an educator, I mean, and this is something I feel very strongly about. We are not language teachers. There's no such thing as a teacher. Everyone is an educator. Yes. And as an educator, as you said, Tony, these are our charges. Their well-being is something that is included in our well that's one of the basic tenets of this podcast i think and i think if it's one one of the themes that runs through all of these things it's, it's exactly that absolutely right it's not about you it's if i feel uncomfortable talking with a student and that student wants to talk about something then i have to figure out a way to get more comfortable or to find a way so that that student i can move that student to the person who can help them yep. but i don't have the right to say i'm sorry this is not something you should talk to me about and i've seen teachers do that it's not my job yeah. Right. It's not my job. I don't feel comfortable. And um, it's one of the few times I'll actually pass judgment is if you're in a classroom, it's like if you're in a classroom during an earthquake, 
Yeah. You know, I've, yeah. I've often thought about this, you know, you're the captain of the ship. You cannot, you know, go up, you know, you cannot abandon ship until you have made sure that everybody is safe and secure. Have you had that experience? An earthquake? Yeah, you know, wait, being on the Titanic, you mean? No, no, I was, I was, in a classroom with an earthquake. I, yeah, I was, actually, it was kind of funny because there was an earthquake going on, and I had the students move away from the windows, get under their tables, and then I left the room to check to make sure that other, you know, teachers were taking care of it. And I think it looked like to the students... I was, was running, running away. Out of the room. <laughs> And I had to actually explain to them what happened afterwards. And I said, look, I, I, once I knew that you guys were reasonably safe, I needed to go to the next classroom to make sure other teachers were aware. And they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> sure, but, Charles. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> nice, nice catch. <laughs> I was really, I thought it worked. I thought it was, a, it, w- it would cover my actions. But uh, it's the same thing. If you're in the classroom, you've got to make sure your students are safe. And that's part of what we're doing. But if you're not comfortable with students talking with you, then I think you need to do some reading. I think you need to get a little bit more comfortable and aware because maybe, here's the maybe, thing that- what, Maybe you need another job. Well, maybe. okay, most people are not gonna change jobs at certain points, but here's something I am going to say, is that you can measure how effective you are as a teacher and how many students have actually improved their English because of you. And I'm going to suggest that, you know, if they had had another teacher, it's you're not making much of a difference. But if you have somehow created an environment and an atmosphere where one kid, one student comes up to you and says, hey, Mr. Wiz, hey, Mr. Silva, um, there's something going on in my life and I want to talk to you, you just might save that kid's life. You might really make that student's life better. They might be depressed and they might be feeling alone and you might be able to help them improve their life. And that one student, the effect you will have on that one student is going to, I think, far exceed the effect you've had cumulatively on all your students in terms of language teaching. And that's something I firmly believe. You know, every year, help one student out. You know, make sure that once, at the end of your teaching year, you could say, you know, I was able to make sure that one student's life is now better than it was before they took my class. And I think that's a good metric. I like it. I'm comfortable with that. So. Well, I can't, yeah. I can't improve on that. Then maybe that's a good time to wrap. Yeah, that's it. I think, um, I think we've, I think we touched it all. I think we got it all. Right. Um, just you know, keep your just eyes and ears human. open, right? Just it's there. Keep your eyes open. Keep your ears open. <clears throat> Listen to what they're and, saying. And I just want to go back to I think Carl Rogers, who was one of the founders of uh, people-centered therapy, and or he talked about the relationship between a therapist just being a conversation. But one of the things that was interesting is that there's some research that indicates that it doesn't. At some points, it didn't matter what kind of therapy the person was going through. It was their relationship with their therapist, how much trust they had, that really had the biggest impact. That makes sense. Because, yeah, right? we so, talk about, yeah, sure. And here's the thing. And if you don't feel comfortable talking to students, but you feel that you'd want to help them, then I'd suggest you adjust your materials so that maybe the content of the materials presents students with some information about things that might be helpful. So for example, some articles about bullying, articles about uh, hikikomori, the students oh. who kind of 
you know, disappear into their their rooms, uh, become isolated socially. You can still do some really good work by just including that kind of content in your classes so that students become exposed and know they're not alone. Right, exactly. I think there's a just Yeah, exactly. Like just, the, you know, you just said, like an article about student depression, right? Right. right. Okay. Nice. All right, Tony. That's, Listen, that's 100. That's 100, talking about actually having an impact. It's a good way to go. And congratulations on 14 years. Many thanks. Many thanks. Yeah, it's we have been our, easy. It's, it's, yeah. A, it's been a flash. It's, it's sped right by. And we have our 20th coming up nice. this year. Nice. This year. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, congrats. Well, day. I told you, this This is my, my strange year where I turned 60. And all the numbers. 30, yeah. thir- 30 years in Japan, 20 years, you know, together with my wife. And, uh, yeah. Okay. So, everybody knows the usual. I'm Charles Wiz. Tony Silva. We're two teachers talking at two teachers talking plus whatever. There you go. <laughs> and you can find us. And, uh, you know, Tony, have a good week. And uh, you too. Be well. Be safe. All right. Be cool. <laughs>